Thank you guys for braving the rain. Thank you for tuning in at home or from wherever you're tuning in, if you're online, man, we're so glad that technology can keep us together. Uh, pull out those Bibles, Bible apps, however you get there, get there. We're going to Mark chapter 11. We have been in the book of Mark since last April. Can you believe that? We've taken a couple breaks here and there, but we are on pace to finish with the resurrection story on Easter. It'll be roughly a year that we have spent in the book of Mark by the time we're done. And uh, I, I'm loving this journey through the book of Mark. Hope you are as well. Uh, one thing that we've seen as we've made our way through those first 10 chapters is that Jesus's ministry was primarily in a rural setting. It was primarily out of the spotlight, primarily among small groups of people on the periphery of the bigger cities. And then in Mark 10, something changed. He began to move towards Jerusalem. And now in Mark chapter 11, we see him come into the city. But there's something else that changes in Mark chapter 11. It's the premise for our series title, the good king. Up until now, other than the rural setting, one of the things that has really marked Jesus' ministry is that he does amazing things and then he tells people, don't tell anybody, right? He even turns water into wine and he tells his own mother, I don't let anybody know how this happened because it's, my time has not yet come. He kept saying that over and over. Well, here we are in chapter 11, his time has come. Jesus is about to announce his, his royalty. He is about to announce his presence in a big, big way in the city of Jerusalem. So he's up to this point, the only people that really know what's coming have been the disciples. And on three different occasions, he has told them, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to make an entrance, and then I'm gonna let them kill me. Sounds like a really uplifting pep talk, right? But that's what he does. He says, in three days after they kill me, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And I'm telling you these things to let you know that I, above all else, am fully surrendered, fully dedicated to the will of my Father. Over and over, that's what we see of him. And in this story, there's no difference. He is going to step into the city in a way that shows that he is about the sovereign will and the sovereign authority of God the Father in his life even as he announces himself as the king. And he's gonna announce with, in the, way, in the way that he announces, he's going to announce what the Father's will fully entails for the world. It's a pretty cool passage. Let's look at verse one. We see him arriving in Mark chapter 11, verse one, uh, at the land of Bethpage and Bethany. Really, he's up the hill. I want you to picture that he's, he's coming down the hill, the final stretch into the city of Jerusalem. Are you ready to walk with him? Two of you ready? Oh, it's a rainy day. It's, but I'm gonna keep asking you stuff, and if you don't talk back to me, it's gonna be super weird, and I'm just gonna start talking to them at home. I'm gonna just pretend they're talking back to me. So that's how it's gonna go. You ready? Yeah. That's better, thank you. I like, I like the enthusiasm over here, good job. So let's go, verse one, it's first, let's start there. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? People tend to do that when you steal their donkey. You say this, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street 
And when they untied it, some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks in the road. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the arrival of a king. You can think about the scene in, in Aladdin where he comes marching in, parades and everything. It's not quite that, but it's kind of that. The people are lining the streets. They're shouting uh, beautiful things. Hosanna, which literally means save us, Lord. Save us. Hosanna, glory in the highest, glory in the highest. The king is here. All these things they're saying, deliverer of God's people, Messiah, all these things. They're declaring the right things as he walks into the city. Now here's how we miss this passage. I love to, to tell us how to not get it wrong. One of the most important hermeneutical concepts when we read the word of God, hermeneutics is just a, a matter of studying the Bible to find what it really says, not what we think it says. One of the greatest concepts you can remember is that context is king. You cannot understand content without context, all right? You got that? One letter difference, content, context, they go together. And what's happening here is we have to not read into this story our understanding of Jesus. Because we have a lot of history that had not happened yet. Jesus is entering the city, these people are shouting these things, and what's happening looks like everything is going just right and all these people know who Jesus is, they know the Messiah has come, all this has happened because we know who Jesus is, we know how the story ends. But what you need to know is there are some groups that are gathering as Jesus enters the city and what they're experiencing is a little less than at first, uh, first glance. Let's, let's look at it. They have a partial and a flawed understanding. So they're shouting the right things. They're declaring the right things. But let's start with the crowd. They were there for the show. They, they gathered. Every time they gathered, it was for, because they had heard of the miracles. They had heard of the teaching. They, had, they, they were gathering because other people were gathering. You know people like that, right? They were, there was something happening they didn't want to miss it. And there, there was teaching, healing, that was the reputation. And so they, they want a Jesus that can do those things. They're gathering because they want it to be true. They want it to be true for them, that this is a Jesus that heals and does amazing things and we can be there. That's what they want. And their shouts of Hosanna were the right words. They were absolutely the right truth to declare as he came in. But... These people still lacked a full understanding of what they were saying. They were quoting a, a, a Hallel psalm, which was a liturg liturgical chant, a liturgical psalm that they would say on the way to Passover, or on the way to some of the festivals going into the city. And so while the words were the right words, they lacked the right heart because they didn't yet know who this guy was. They just knew that he was awesome enough to draw a crowd. This made a lot of sense to declare these things. It's like a parade going on right now for the crowd. They're enjoying the parade. The proclamation of Jesus as king was the right proclamation, but their proclamation, their words, outran their understanding and their obedience. That's what we need to know. Then there's these Pharisees. They, they don't talk about them yet, but they're there. And these Pharisees, what we've seen from them is they want, they want a Jesus that just doesn't threaten their way of life. They want a Jesus that would behave. 
A Jesus that won't mess with their systems and their religious legalistic standards, that won't threaten their authority and their uh, sway in culture, their influence. So they're in the crowd too. And their motives are very different. They're probably not shouting Hosanna, they're probably just watching for the moment when they can entrap Jesus and trip him up. They'll be the tools of his undoing. Then there's some zealots among the crowds. Isn't there always a passionate zealot for a cause in a, in a crowd, right? There's always someone that's there for their cause. These are people who think that Jesus should come on in. They can rally the militia. They've got the people lined up behind the scenes. They're ready to go. Let's overthrow the Roman government and let's establish a new earthly kingdom the way things really ought to be. They wanna set things right. They want a powerful kingdom and they want a king that can do that. That's the Jesus they want, the one that will overthrow Rome. And then there's these disciples. They're just walking in. They wanted a king that would fulfill their aspirations. Remember, I told you, Jesus has already three times told them, we're going down there. The son of man, that's me, is gonna give myself over to the authorities. They're gonna kill me and in three days I'm gonna raise again because that is the will of my father. That is why I came. Except every time he shares that with the disciples, they're like, sweet, if he's gonna die, who's gonna be left in charge? Can I be the Duke of Jerusalem? Can I be the Prince of Bethany Bethpage? Can I be, like you put it in some royal terms, they're really jockeying for status and for titles and for really authority without any risk, right? They're really wanting to be dukes and princes. And if you watch The Crown or you watch any of these British shows, you realize those guys have a lot of pomp and a lot of circumstance and zero authority, not a lot of influence, right? That's what these guys are doing. Can you make it an easy place of status for us? We want that kind of Jesus. And so Jesus begins to teach the disciples a lesson first. Jesus, Mark doesn't tell us which two disciples Jesus sent to fetch the donkey. But can I just tell you that in my mind, I think it would be awesome if it was James and John. Because just in the last chapter, they're like, hey Jesus, can we sit next to you? Can we be the dukes and the princes? He said, no, but you can fetch the donkey. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? So anyway, these disciples have all exhibited this behavior and two of them have been sent to be the livestock fetchers, the ones who tend the donkey, clean up after the donkey, take the donkey back, all these things. It's a very humbling job. And Jesus continues his march toward Jerusalem through the parade, through the adoration shouts of the people. And upon his entry, he begins to clarify what kind of king he will be. He begins to really announce his coming. And Mark is going to great detail to make sure we don't miss this. These people are singing and shouting Hosanna, this, this liturgical psalm that, that would be sung when people were moving up to Jerusalem for Passover or the Feast of the Tabernacles, a traditional liturgy, liturgy. And it made sense to sing this for a well-known miracle worker, but they all had their version of Jesus that they wanted, even as they chanted the right words. It made sense, but they didn't actually know that this was the Jesus the, who would be king the one who had been promised to sit on David's throne, the one that blind Bartimaeus had just declared previously in the last chapter. They had no idea that his kingdom was not gonna be an earthly powerful one, but one that would rule in the hearts of his people. And it would be bigger than a region, it would be bigger than an ethnicity, it would be a, 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 a rule of a savior king who through his death and resurrection would provide redemption for all people. 
They were missing it. They surely didn't know that he was not there just for them, that it was bigger than they thought. But the buzz of the crowd and the momentum of the day surged forward. And even for that, it may have taken some time for them to really start understanding that his entrance really was a statement. I wonder how quickly they realized this, but in the Old Testament, there are some very clear prophecies, some very specific prophecies of how God would ultimately fulfill his promise that someone from the line of David, a son of David, would then become the ultimate king of the Jews, the ultimate king of God's people, the one who would assume the throne for all time. Like they're, 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 I wonder how long it took them to realize that the way he entered the town was declaring that I'm that guy. Listen to Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, it's very clear that Zechariah 9 is being carefully fulfilled in his entry. Jesus silently and humbly is declaring in a way that is very evident, if you stop and think, that the sovereign will of God is happening on the streets on the way in to Jerusalem on this day. And I wonder, how long did they see it? Did they take to see it? How long before they realized it? His entry marks the prophecy of the coming king. And it's all here, the animal he's riding on, it's a colt. The reception of the people, rejoice, O daughter of Zion, rejoice, Jerusalem. It's all here in Zechariah, hundreds of years before. And now it's happening, specifically fulfilled, just as God willed it to be fulfilled in history. His arrival is the fulfillment of prophecy. We begin to see that Jesus is a king like no other, he's a good king. His humility and his service are on display. Can you imagine how different that entry was to any other king's entrance? Like I, I held out to you the entrance of, of Aladdin and the genie when they came into uh, Arakba or whatever the place was called. It was fanfare, it was pomp and circumstances, a display, a display of wealth. Most of the time when a king would enter, he would bring his army. He would be showing everyone, don't dare face me. I'm here because I've got all this at my disposal. I'm here because I belong here. Jesus enters like a servant. He enters humbly on the back of a donkey and not even like a big statuesque donkey, a little colt, lowly, no saddle, No caravan of military might, just a common group of common men who have followed him. And he enters humbly on a donkey. And I think what he's showing us is that he's entering at the full submission to the will of his father. That even the details of the day and even the people on the streets unknowingly are a part of the fulfillment of prophecy. And this character is showing forth in his kingship. And his character is showing forth in what he expects of his followers. 
They're not bearing flags, they're not wearing uh, royal robes, they're not carrying gifts for the, for the rulers in the city, they're not doing any of those things. In fact, the only thing they've really done is follow him and fetch the donkey. It's humble. But in Jesus' arrival, we see his heart. This is a very different king, a good king, who's here to serve his people. See, I think what's happening here is that we see that Jesus is a king that is so good that he loves us too much to merely meet our expectations. He loves us too much. And what we see in these following sections of this passage are he is confronting the misplaced hopes. He is confronting the misplaced and, and, and miscast expectations. He's confronting wrong motives and, and selfish expectations, all these things to further assert himself as the good king and to kind of disrupt what's become normal, what's become the expectation, what's become the definition of greatness. He comes in and he just says, none of this is working. Here's what God wants for you. It's why I'm here. Watch this. So he comes in. The crowd has no idea. But what you're gonna see in a second is the crowd's gone anyway. By the time Jesus makes it into the city, the crowd has gone home. It says it's late. They didn't follow him in. It was like the parade's over. Somebody clean this up. We gotta go to the house. It's dinner time. That's what happened. The crowd, they left. They'd said the right words, but by the time he entered the city, Mark tells us it was just Jesus and his disciples. They chanted, they cheered, but they did not follow. And now Jesus is in the city. Look at verse 12. They'd gone home. Now they're coming back in on the next day. The following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, in the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus walks in and he begins to confront the hypocrisy that he sees. This is a passage that a lot of people get wrong. He's, he's confronting hypocrisy, he's confronting misplaced hope of the people that he encounters. And what follows seems like a very disjointed uh, account, right? It seems like four different stories, but what I really wanna hold out to us today is that from his entrance all the way to verse 25, he's really, there's a thread that Jesus is a good king confronting our desires for a different kind of king. He's a good king confronting hypocrisy, confronting self-motivation, self-indulgence, uh, self-fulfilling power, those kind of things. Showing us what we really, really need. These stories are very connected. See, first there's this fig tree. They're walking into town again. Jesus sees a tree. I'm hungry. I'd like a fig. He walks over. It's in full bloom, even though it's not the season for figs. Sounds like an amazing tree, right? All the other trees are dead. This one's full bloom, full leaves. If it has figs on it, it's a fig tree like no other, except it's empty. So Jesus is not unaware that it's not the season for figs. 
yet he's not impressed that even though it's not the season for figs, that it's in leaf. See, only figs, fig trees only leaf during fruit-bearing season. So he looks at this tree. He says, there's nothing special about this tree. This tree is just as dead as the others. It's a fig tree. It's supposed to produce fruit, and there's no fruit on it. I curse this tree. And when we read this passage, my first, my first reaction to it is, man, Jesus was hangry. Like, he should have had a Snickers, right? It's not what's going on at all. This isn't a situation of hangry emotions. This isn't Jesus ignorant of the seasons or ignorant of the culture and the landscape of, his, of, of this place. Jesus is teaching his disciples and he is foreshadowing a lesson that they're about to see. He doesn't want them to miss what's getting ready to happen in the temple. He looks at this tree and it, all, it looks like all the right things are happening. It looks healthy. It looks like it's doing what it's supposed to, but what good is that appearance if it produces no fruit? Jesus makes a point. This tree looks awesome. It's not. This tree looks alive. It's not. This tree looks like it's deeply rooted or more healthy than the others. It is not. See, I, I don't know if you've been around here very long, but we love fig trees around here. We preach on fig trees some because in scripture, uh, the fig tree is often an example of the nation of Israel. Do you know why a fig tree would not produce fruit even though it looked healthy and looked looked like it would be leaf, leafy and, and, and strong. Do you know why it wouldn't? It's because it's rooted in the wrong kind of soil. It's too rich in nitrogen, which makes it grow more rapidly and, and prematurely leaf. So it wouldn't but not produce fruit. It's not rooted deeply enough. It's not rooted into the right things. Probably because the second reason it wouldn't do that is because it was immature. I have one on my back porch. It looks awesome. It never produces a fig because it's, it takes at least two to five years for it to finally reach maturity to then produce fruit. It's the same kind of fig tree that was likely in this place. It's immature. It hasn't grown. It hasn't fully rooted to the, to the soil where the right nutrients are. It's causing leaves to grow. It's causing the tree to grow in height. It looks good. It looks better than the ones near it. But at the end of the day, it produces no fruit. It's no good. Its roots just aren't deep enough. It's not doing what it was intended to do. So Jesus curses it. And then he walks into the temple and get this, he does the same thing. So I think one of the ways we miss this story is because we view the temple as a building like ours. Like we figure, oh, they went to the church house. I know what that's like, except you don't because at the temple, there was a courtyard around the main part of the temple that spanned over 35 acres. And Jesus enters into this. He's walking down a hill into Jerusalem and down the street looking out to, to, to the temple and it is alive with, with activity. In fact, if you stopped at the top of the hill, one could easily look down there and say, wow, the temple is happening. The people are really worshiping. Look at the business of the temple. Look at how, how many people are there. They must be making a huge deal of God. And then he walks in. He finds the business of the temple in full swing. 35 acres filled with people. He enters into the court of the Gentiles and he finds at first what looks like normal business. See, people mess this passage all up all the time. The issue Jesus had wasn't that they were exchanging money. Like sometimes I've been in Baptist churches like, see, that's why we don't sell raffle tickets. They say it just like that too. Oh, that's stupid. 
That's not what Jesus was mad about. People sold sacrificial animals all the time in the temple. Every, every place where you could offer sacrifice, you could buy an animal. The, the standards for an animal to, to be presented as an acceptable sacrifice were really high. So when people came from other regions into Jerusalem to celebrate a festival or to celebrate Passover or whatever, often they knew that the journey would leave their, their animal flawed or, or unable to be presented and found acceptable or it would be very costly, very difficult to make that journey. So they would bring enough money to buy one when they got there. So what Jesus finds is not anything that, that's out of the normal except they had extorted the price, or price gouged people. They were extorting people. They had raised the prices. Some historians estimate that they had raised the prices up to 100, I'm sorry, 16 times, 160%. Right, 1,600%, 1,600%, that's right. I'm not good at math, that's why I'm a preacher. 1,600%. So he, he specifies pigeons. Do you know why he specifies pigeons? Because they are exploiting the poor. The pigeon was the lowest cost, the lowest animal that could be accepted. So if someone who was poor would come, and they wouldn't probably buy a lamb or, 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 or a goat, they would buy a pigeon. So Jesus is looking, and these people are exploiting the poor. But then it also specifies that he enters in the court of the Gentiles. And so he enters into the court of the Gentiles and he finds inflated prices, uh, selfish uh, Sanhedrin manipulating people. So now two things are happening. So people who have come from other lands are exchanging their money and the people who are exchanging the money are taking their cut. But they're taking above the normal rate. And then they're taking that money that's already been reduced. They're getting 60 cents on the dollar or whatever and they're being forced to pay 1,600 times the cost of a, of a pigeon. So what's happening is Jesus walks into the court and what really sets him off is not that money is changing hands, it's that the poor are being exploited and they have intentionally set up a barrier for people to worship, the Gentiles specifically. See, what, what happens is everybody thought that Jesus was coming to cleanse the temple for them to remove the Gentiles. So Jesus was coming to cleanse the temple to make a purer worship for the Jews. But what was happening is Jesus was coming to cleanse the temple so that Gentiles could worship. So he starts upsetting tables and turning the whole thing on its head, literally. He's furious and he shouts to them two verses. One is Isaiah 56, seven. One is Jeremiah seven eleven. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. What is upsetting Jesus is that he walks in and it looks like worship is happening, but it is selfish. It is uh, an, an inflation of the law, an inflation of the prices. It is injustice. It is all these things. And what they're doing in the name of worship is preying on the people that he came to die for. Get it? Does it make you mad too? It makes me mad. He comes in. And he sees that what was intended to be laws that keep people in a right relationship with God until he can come fulfill the will of the Father has actually been distorted to the selfish benefit of those in authority. And what was meant to give people access to forgiveness and access to worship and access to a right relationship with God has been leveraged to keep out entire groups of people to the benefit of a select few. So he literally turns the whole process upside down. I would have loved to have seen it. And in doing so, he gives us another foreshadowing of how the good king operates. 
see in his actions, we see his heart. And his heart is for all people, every economic group, every ethnic origin. His heart is that all people might worship, not just a few. These, these laws, the best laid laws, the best made traditions and rituals, they could not compensate for the evil hearts of men, men given over to selfish motives and to misplaced hope. Jesus had to come. We needed a different king. We needed a different world order. And his plan for true worship was just put in place when Jesus started flipping tables. His plan for true worship was that true worship would be available to all the world, not just the Jews. That there would no longer be barriers for anyone to get there. And let me tell you something, this is good news for everyone in this room. Unless you are 100% of Jewish, uh, Jewish origin, then the reason that we can gather in the name of God and the reason that we can celebrate the faith in God and the gospel is because he made it available to us. He tore down barriers. He would not settle for the hypocrisy that he saw. Just like the fig tree, he saw that even though things looked okay from afar, the heart was missing when you got up close. It lacked fruit, it lacked results, it lacked an intended purpose. Technically, they were upholding the law. Technically, there was a loophole maybe in court that they were doing the right thing. But Jesus knows the heart. And he knew that what they were doing was with a selfish heart, a prejudiced heart, a heart of exclusion, not invitation, a heart of selfish motivation, certainly not one of grace and humility like the one that the king showed when he rode in on a donkey. You seeing how this is tying together? Look at verse 20. As they pass by in the morning, they keep making the same journey. So they're staying at Mary and Martha's house up in Bethany. As they pass by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. I don't know if you've ever tried to kill a tree. I have. I've cut them down. I've drilled holes in the stump and filled them full of Roundup. I've poured everything in them that is supposed to kill a stump. I have two stumps in my yard that will not die. I don't know what's going on with these things. But I know this, I've never seen a tree wither and die in 24 hours, never. Not in 24 hours, not in 48. You can make an argument that it was two days, still never has happened. Yeah, these guys, they see it too. They're walking down the street, wait, whoa! All these trees were dormant. That one was alive and looked healthy, it looked strong and now it is dead. It's like withered away. Jesus, look at that, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, never coming back. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, duh. No, this is my version. It actually says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, th that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also is, who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
So again, uh, he ends with a passage here that gets misinterpreted all the time. You know why? Because they just, we like to pull that verse out and make it mean what we want it to instead of looking at it in context with the other 25 verses. If Jesus is the good king who rides in on a donkey and gets, gets aggravated at hypocrisy and, and selfishness and self-fulfillment in, 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 in opposition to glory of God and grace and, and service and, 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 and justice, then he's not a God who lets you say things to him like, God, I say in your your name move this mountain? It makes no sense in context. If he's the good king, we ask, we don't declare. Does that make sense? And when we take this thing out of context, we miss the power of the verse. What Jesus is doing is he is answering the doubts of his disciples. Everything he's doing, even though it's more public, even though it's more visible, he still is having these teaching moments with the 12. They're struggling to understand and they're walking down the street and Peter is more in the posture of like, what, how, I don't understand what just happened. Like, I wanna believe that all this stuff is adding up I wanna believe that you're really the son of God, that you're really the Messiah. I don't understand how in the world you spoke to a tree that was the healthiest tree in the field two days ago and now it's withered to the roots. And Jesus lovingly looks at him and he says, hey, doubts are okay, bring those two. He says, in fact, here's the thing, like there's this mountain between you and the truth that I am the good king. If you'll just believe in me enough, that mountain goes away. So this isn't a verse about whatever mountain you're facing, like Jesus, the mountain of my finances. I wanna be rich. Jesus, the mountain of my marriage. I want my wife to adore me, whatever. I mean, it's not this name it and claim it, claim it kind of thing. It's not this, Lord, my 401k is tanking. I really want my kid to go to college. Would you please put a mountain of cash in there? Like move the mountain into my 401k. Would you do that? Like, it's not that at all. What he's saying is, I know it seems too big for you to believe what I'm showing you. But if you'll believe anyway, that it's almost like a mountain is no longer in your way and you can see all the way to the ocean. You can see all the way to the truth. You can see all the way to what's next. And know this, what you saw yesterday, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about even the practice. What it was about was the heart. I came here to forgive. If you understand how much you've been forgiven, then you'll just forgive others. These are the two things that you need to really settle in your hearts, church, to really get it right. He's a good king, and what we're rooted in matters. And if we're rooted in the right thing, we produce fruit, not because we faith harder, not because we do more, not because we just sort out our life and get it right all of a sudden, but because we begin to understand that even when we can't see it, if we will root ourselves in Christ, him in us, through us, produces fruit. Us in our own efforts makes him angry and upset tables. Us in our own efforts looks like leaves on a tree with no fruit. The point is fruit. He came to forgive and to save so that more can be forgiven and more can be saved. That's why our goal is not to fill up rooms, but to create a culture of discipleship so that more can know, more can be saved. Because ultimately, if we're rooted in the wrong soil, or worse, we're turned inward, we will bear no fruit. And that doesn't look like what he came to do. The good king came to work in the hearts of all people. 
so that all can pray, all can depend upon him. He's right back to that truth from Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you'll just depend on me, it's like the mountains are moving. You'll have what you need. Church, the fruit of God's work in and through his people results in the glory of God. That's the lesson here. And for all eternity, on this side of heaven, this will always be a tension within us, the same tension that we see in the disciples, the same tension that we see in the crowd. It's a tension between God's glory and our own. They desperately wanna be the dukes and princes, but he says, no, come humbly, carry the donkey back to the neighbor that let us use it and, 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 and give yourselves to me. No, it's the Jews want to be the people of God. No, it's for everyone. I've broken down barriers. It's no longer a barrier, so it's not acceptable to exclude the Gentiles. He does these things. There's always a tension between God's glory and our glory. And I think what he's calling to his disciples is, even in your doubt, will you resolve the tension by moving towards me and not towards self? I think that's it. And I think for us, it's time to respond to that truth, just like the disciples are being called to respond. Stevie Stone, uh, she, she oversees our preschool ministry. She assists the, the discipleship department. She, she, she just has been studying this passage, helping us with some things. And she said this, this passage shows us that true worship leaves no room for selfish motives or personal gains. We must fully submit to God's will in what we ask of him and trust in his power to do the impossible in our lives and to remove what hinders our worship what hinders our growth. This isn't a promise that God will do whatever we ask of him. It's a promise that he can move the thing that feels like a mountain in our way and help us find our way to Jesus. Would you pray with me? As we bow our heads, I just wanna ask us this question. I, I gave us a lot, I went real fast, but really here's the question that we have to settle in our hearts today. Are there areas in our lives that are already withering? Where if we're honest, we just know they're destined to wither away. They're destined to not bear fruit. Where if we're honest, it's, it's, it's the futility of misplaced hope. And it's, it's something that we just keep banging our head against. We keep being frustrated by. It's the frustration of being rooted in the wrong thing, of wanting to grow, of wanting to bear fruit but knowing that we're rooted in things that will ultimately wither. I just wanna call you to confess that to him today. To confess it to him knowing that he says that even if you think you can't get past it, even if you think you can't get past it, if you trust in him as the good king, he says he'll move it because it's in his power, not in ours. Second thing I wanna ask us is, are there places in your heart where, the, where you are withholding forgiveness? Could be forgiveness of yourself. Could be the forgiveness of someone close to you or someone who used to be close to you. But the truth is you're withering away because you know you're eaten up with resentments that are yet unresolved. And church, there's nothing like forgiveness that, under, that shows that we understand who we are and how much we need the good king. If we dare to withhold forgiveness from someone else, then we have not yet understood just how much we have been offered forgiveness. 
Confess those places where you're rooted in the wrong thing. Confess where you've withheld forgiveness. And watch Jesus turn what has been withering away, something that was cursed, into something that he can sustain, into something that through him he can bear fruit. Would you just confess it? Would you just turn to him? Some of you in the room, you need to pray this prayer with me today. Father, I trust in your son. Father, I wanna follow the good king instead of following my own way. Father, would you help me with my doubts? Move them like a mountain out of my way and help me see you more clearly, I'll follow you. And for some of you, that's the prayer that you pray to make Jesus the Lord of your life for the first time. And some of you, that's the, the prayer of a believer that's searching to stay the course and to grow and move toward Jesus. Father, be with us. Would you honor the prayers of those who are doing business in their hearts with you right now? Amen.